You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Good morning. Good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as a lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle, I'm the best church in the city of Louisville, and I'm thankful to God. Yeah, I see those hands up in the back. I praise God for that. Um, we're thankful for to be here. To our mothers here, happy Mother's Day. We are thankful for you, and we are, I want to honor you um, by giving you a rose at the end of the service. So if you didn't get a rose, it's not my fault. Uh, make sure to get one, please. At the end of the service, we will have those available for you. Um, as you leave today. If you're joining with us for the first time, we've been embarking through a five-week sermon series going through the book of Titus called This Beautiful Church. Three three weeks ago, we explored God's uh, beautiful confidence, verses chapter one, verses one through four. Two weeks ago, we explained beautiful calling, Last week, Pastor Nick expounded upon this beautiful community, looking at chapter 2. And this week, we'll examine the beautiful commission, looking at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. And this is the theme. This is the theme that I want you to walk away with as we look at this text together. This is the, the, the big point that I want you to walk away with is this. A beautiful church engages the world with faithful deeds and avoiding foolish disputes. A beautiful church engages the world with faithful deeds and avoiding foolish disputes. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we thank you for this day. We ask that you will be with us in every way. Help us, Lord, to continue to become the beautiful church that you have died and rose again for us to be. We thank you and for the gift of today. We ask, Lord, as always, that you take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. Hide me behind your cross so your people may see you and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the oldest questions in the history of the church for us to consider is this. What does faithfulness to God look like in an unfaithful world? In other words, how should the church engage culture? (laughs) You know, there have been two primary methods of engagement regarding the church and culture. One is to assimilate to the world, and the other is to avoid the world altogether. Let's look at this first method of engagement, assimilate to the world. Assimilation is an attempt to become like something or someone. It is to mimic the beliefs and rituals and practices of the world in order to better understand and relate with them. Unfortunately, this method has not worked out well. Consequently, most assimilated churches have been pressured to reject biblical teaching and orthodox doctrine. It's a good reminder for us that an assimilated church fails 
because he has nothing to give the world than it already possesses. Let's explore the second method of engagement, avoid the world. You see, avoidance is an attempt to guard one's beliefs from the world in order to keep oneself pure. This church builds a wall of defense in order to avoid engaging with the culture at all. And while both of these methods are well-intended, neither are successful. Assimilated churches, they want everyone to go to heaven. So they open the doors wide and they keep the gospel very small. Avoidant churches want their children uncorrupted by the world. So they keep everything close and guarded and allow no one to pass through who doesn't pass the test of orthodoxy or orthodox teaching. So what's the answer? How does a church engage with the world? Last week, Pastor Nick described how we should relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as he taught us from our theme, God's Beautiful Church. This week, Paul shifts his posture from how the church should interact with one another towards how the church should interact with the culture around it. He thereby provides a guideline to help us navigate between these two diametrically opposing poles of the, being the church of assimilation and then being the church of avoidance, <laughs> thereby answering our original question, how should the church engage culture? I mean, what, what does faithfulness look like in an unfaithful world? Look with me in verses 1 and 2. Paul ex- gives us explicit instruction here. He says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Notice with me from the very beginning, Paul's words to Titus, he says, remind the people. In the Greek, it literally means remind them. This implies that what Paul is about to say shouldn't be taken as new information. It's a good reminder for us that God's word is timeless. His principles are eternal and his promises have no expiration date. Hence, as a church, we need to be constantly reminded to obey the truth that God has already made known and not constantly seek truth that we haven't obtained yet. I love how Deuteronomy 29 29 puts it. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. So what should be our general posture towards the government? Or in other words, what is our default? Paul makes it abundantly clear. Submit. Obey the law, pay taxes, pray for the leaders. Now, now before we go any further, I want to address the elephant in the room. Because I know what some of you are thinking when I say these words. Submit to rulers and authorities? To obey? To, To be ready for every good deed? Paul, you're crazy. What what if Paul, Paul, what if the government is corrupt? What if the government upholds unjust laws 
and unjust systems? What if the government is antithetical to the Christian faith? Should we still obey Paul? I know how you're feeling. (laughs) Some of you are thinking right now that Paul is out of his mind. If we submit to the government, aren't we abstaining from our First Amendment rights? And if we submit to the government, are Christians allowed to protest? Or maybe should we abstain from all, any, any and all acts of civil disobedience? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is a hard message for some of us to comprehend, especially for those who might not see government as something being worthy of your submission. So how do, I, how do you know, Pastor Fields? Well, I know because I had similar thoughts earlier this week myself. You see, some of us have been raised to believe that government is never the solution. It's always the problem. Some of us have been raised to believe that rulers are always corrupt and they can never be trusted. Some of us have been, have been raised to believe that every source of human authority is cruel, unjust, and pretentious. And to you, I would say, (laughs) in some cases, yes and amen, but also will provide a warning. And here's the warning. I say that not just to you, but also to myself. And it's the warning that we say here often. Don't allow your circumstances to define God's character. Some of us are very conflicted when we hear this message to submit. And we write this thing off like, well, Paul, it's easy for Paul to write to this to Titus because he didn't have to deal with the horrible leadership that we have here in America today. I would say that's not totally true. Remember how Crete, the, the island of Crete and Cretans were described in chapter one, verse 12. It says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. I would also remind us that this letter was most likely written while Nero was emperor, which signaled a time of great persecution for Christians. In 64 AD, there was a fire that lasted in Rome for six to seven days. And many people at the time, specifically citizens of Rome, started to think that Nero, their emperor, purposely did this in order for his amusement and for his entertainment. And to combat this theory, what Nero did was that he blamed Christians. He said, no, I didn't do it. The Christians did it. Actually, go kill all of them. Persecute them. This message is not a message that would have been easily received by the people at this time. Notice with me, Paul is not telling Titus to comply with the government no matter what. Let me say that again. Paul is not telling Titus to comply with the government no matter what. But what Paul is saying is that if obeying the government requires us to sin, we should always resist. I love how John Stott puts it in his commentary. He says these words. He says, not that Christian citizens can never can ever give the the state unconditional allegiance, that would be to worship the state, as in the emperor worshiper of the first century, which Christians recognize as idolatry. 
Christian duty in principle is to submit to the state because as Paul has explained in Romans 13, the state's responsibility has been delegated to it by God. This means that our first loyalty is to him whose authority it is. And if our duty to obey him comes into, coll- into collusion with our duty to um, collision to, with our duty to obey the state, our duty to God takes precedence. It's a good reminder for us that we're called to submit to God first and foremost. And if we're called to submit to rulers and, and we're called to submit to rulers and authorities, as long as those individuals willfully submit themselves to God our King. It's no perfect analogy to give an understanding of what this looks like, but I, I'm going to give my best shot at it. This, this aspect of submitting to an authority that's under God is very comparable to a younger, assembly, a younger sibling submitting to older, older siblings' authority while mom and dad are away. You, you know what I'm talking about. The, the older sibling is allowed to be in charge while mom goes to the grocery store or, if she, or dad goes to the YMCA to work out, whatever it may be. But their older sibling has limited authority to the extent that it correlates with the parents' authority and their attentions. So if the older sibling looks to the, old, the younger siblings and say, hey, don't jump on the bed. If mom and dad would say the same thing, if they were here, they should listen and comply. They should follow those, those instructions. Those are good instructions to follow. But if an older sibling looks to the kids and say, <laughs> mom and dad are gone, I'm in charge now. And if they say, everyone give me candy or else, or if they say, go to your piggy bank, break it and give me all the money, don't tell mom while she's gone, that's not, that's misusing and abusing one's authority apart from the parents' authority and also their intention. Pastor James, why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Well, it's because once again, a beautiful church engages the world with faithful deeds and avoids foolish disputes. Paul moves beyond the political realm and speaks into our everyday relationships. Look with me in verse two. Paul's message here is clear. To slander no one, avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Notice the brackets that Paul puts up for Timothy. He says in the beginning, to slander no one. At the very end, he says, showing gentleness to all people. So the parameters that we're supposed to allow these words to to actually take hold within, the the brackets that we put up is no one and all people. This is an all-inclusive message for us as the body of Christ. And notice what Paul says. Paul says to slander no one. To slander means to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans or maligns someone. It it means not to speak disrespectfully to someone or of someone. It means not to speak against someone in a mean or harsh way. In other words, in honor of Mother's Day, I want to give us some mothers from TV shows that can give us good examples of what to be and what not to be. The first example is we don't want to, if we talk about not to slander, we don't want to be like this person behind me. Huh? 
Oh, they didn't make it. Okay, thank you for letting me know. We don't want to talk. We don't want to talk about people like Sophia. Do you remember Sophia from the Golden Girls? You remember Sophia? So, Sophia was a woman that was not to be messed with. And she would itch, eat you up and spit you out in two minutes or less. Slander no one. When you think of this, think of Sophia from the Golden Girls. We don't want to be like Sophia. But what we do want to be is to be peaceable. To be peaceable means to wind down and not to wind up. It means to have a posture of peacemaking, bridge building, and de-escalation. It is to have the presence to be able to learn how to de-escalate situations before they become chaotic. And if we don't want to be like Sophia from the Golden Girls, the most perfect person I could think of, and again, I'm flawed in my analogy, but it's my analogy, so I'm giving it to you. The most perfect person I could think of is Claire Huxtable from The Cosby Show. Claire could turn any situation that, he, that, that Heathcliff, Heathcliff Huxtable messed up, she can always turn it around. She always had a presence about her that she can go into a situation regardless of what it is, and always make it better. Always make it peaceable. The next affirmation that we're called to do is to be considerate. This means to be eager to find common ground. It means to be gracious, to be courteous, to, 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 have, uh, to be a big-hearted person. Now, now, let me be very clear. This does not mean that you are to be a pushover. It doesn't mean that you're to be easily persuaded, but it does mean that you are able to find a common ground despite having difficult or maybe even opposing situations placed before you. The person that I thought about here is, again, from the Golden Girls. You can tell I like Golden Girls. I do like the Golden Girls, so I'll let that... I used to watch it in college, but don't tell my friends. It's to be... Balanced in your actions like Dorothy. Remember Dorothy from the Golden Girls? She, she wasn't like Sophia. She had a little, little spite to her, but Dorothy always was level-headed. She was never too high. She was never too low. She was always even keel. And this is what the image that we have here of being considerate. And then lastly, we're always to be gentle towards everyone. This means to be gentle with our words and our actions. It means meekness. Meekness means controlled strength. Notice with me that only a strong person can be meek. How can you control strength that you don't possess? And what God is calling us to do as a church is to know our strengths, but also, and know our weightiness but also know its impact. My wife has a saying for me at home, sometimes when my weightiness gets out of control, she just looks at me and say, James, I can feel your weight. <laughs> and what that reminds me is to say, I need to be meek. I, I can't just be throwing my authority around. I can't just be throwing who I am around. I have to be controlled of the authority that God has given me so that those around me can flourish and those around me can experience God's love through me and not despite me. 
The person that I thought of, again, not perfect, but again, my illustration is again from the Golden Girls. You know which Golden Girl I'm thinking about? That's all right. You probably don't even know what Golden no, you don't know what Golden Girls are. Uh, Rose, yes, of course, Rose, right? Rose was always gentle to everyone, always kind. Not to be naive like Rose, but to be joyful. So here it is, always, everyone, no exception. What Paul is saying is that there's no limit to the extent of our humility, and there's no limit to whom we should show or be humble towards. It's a good reminder that our actions, our attitudes, and our interactions with one another, they matter to God. How we interact with our family matters to God. How we parent our children matters to God. Why does it matter to God? Because a beautiful church engages the world with faithful deeds and avoids foolish disputes. So so what should this look like? What what should this look like? Let let me give you a couple of practical things of what this could look like for us. It, It means being eager to serve and to be known as one who actively seeks to bless others. Not adding to the noise and the nasty rhetoric of culture. Not adding to it, but actually looking to serve needs. Not just identifying problems, but also coming up with solutions to those problems. It means being big-hearted. It means being good listeners, humble and approachable. Not a pushover, but gentle in spirit. It means being one who engages a culture while also holding on to your convictions. Not a hypocrite, one who tells what others what to do, but won't do it themselves. It means being one who doesn't just speak the truth, but one who speaks the truth in love. Not like one who uses the truth like a hammer and sees everyone as their nail. So what motivates us to know and engage with the society as kingdom citizens? What is our motivation? Where do we get inspiration from? Paul gives us an insightful answer to this question in verses 3 through 7. Listen to these words that Paul shares. For we, too, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, distesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his love on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. You see, like a good father, Paul provides four questions for us to consider regarding our salvation. Number one, when did God save us? Look with me in verse three. He says, for we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. So what motivates us to serve God faithfully within an unfaithful world? Paul reminds us of our identity before Christ. He reminds us of our identity in Christ 
to motivate us to serve him and others because people aren't the real enemy. Our separation from God due to sin is the real enemy. See, as Christians, we're constantly misrepresented. We're marginalized, marginalized and even maligned by the world. So how do we respond with love and not anger? How do we respond with gentleness and not bitterness? How do we respond with mercy and not hatred? Paul gives an answer in verse three. Don't forget your salvation. Don't forget how you were saved. Don't forget where you were saved from. Today, we get to celebrate three baptisms. And a part of that baptisms, those baptisms, we get to hear a testimony. We get to hear the testimony of those three young ladies who are giving their life, who have given their life to Jesus and turned away from sin and are looking to him. And we get to witness for ourselves the beauty and the miracle of what it looks like to place our faith and our hope in Jesus. Church family, if you don't leave with anything today, would you please take this golden nugget with you as you go home on this Mother's Day? Don't forget your salvation. Don't forget. Don't forget how, who saved you. Don't forget what he saved you from. And don't forget how he's still saving you today. You know, it's good to be reminded not only that we, when we were saved, but it's also good to be reminded of why we were saved. Why did God save us? We see in verses four and five. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Notice with me, Paul makes it abundantly clear that God saved us. And he saved us in a special way. He saved us through the incarnation, meaning that God became flesh in the person of Jesus. If Jesus was just a martyr and he died for us, his, 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 his death would mean nothing for us. If Jesus was just a good person and he died for us, we would be happy and, and, and thankful, but it would mean nothing to, for us. But because Jesus died as the sinless son of God, and his death, his burial, and his resurrection still accounts to us today, even in the three young ladies we're going to see be baptized here today, we know that his death meant something. And we know it meant something because he was truly who he said he was. He's a son of God. And because he's a son of God, and because he came in the flesh, he and he alone, could die and atone for the sins of the world so that all of us may find faith, hope, and assurance at the cross of Calvary. This is why Jesus' name is to be the King of kings and the Lord's of Lord. There are many kings in this world who will tell you to bow down to them. And there are many lords that will tell you to bow down to him. But Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords because he is God made flesh was crucified on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And because he was crucified and because he was died and because he was sinless, he rose again on the third day. 
And he sits next to the Father right now here today, making intercession for us. Do you believe that truth today? Do do you believe that we're not just here to play games and it's a symbol to talk about this mystical figure named Jesus, but Jesus is alive today? He's ruling and reigning today? That he's making prayers for you right now, sitting to the right hand of the Father. He's making prayers for you right now. Knowing every emotion, every fear, every anxiety, every pressure that you feel. He sees it, he knows it, and he's responding with grace, praying for you right now in the ear of the Father. Only Jesus can do that. Martin Luther King was a great leader. Barack Obama was a great leader. Ronald Reagan was a good leader. But listen, none of them can compare to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can say that he saves us. Nothing more, nothing less. It's Jesus. Notice with me that God saves us, but notice how he saves us. He saves us according to his character. He doesn't just save you because he thinks you are so awesome. (laughs) He saves you out out of the grace and goodness of his character. Reminds us that salvation is the gift of God. And he offers it to us freely because he is merciful and kind. I love what Exodus 34 verse 6 says about the character of God. It says, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. This is our God. We see in verses 5 and 6 how he saved us. Read with me. It says he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, the Greek word for washing of re- or, or new birth is this word palingenesis. And it means rebirth or recreation. And it only appears two times in the New Testament. And what this word means, it not means just to be remade, it also means to be totally healed. You see, our world is wrecked with sin, but it will be healed and made new in the rebirth or the palingenesis. One day, Jesus will wipe away all of our tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more poverty, no more death. It will be a day of total joy and eternal peace filled with singing, dancing, feasting, and celebration. And notice here that Paul has the audacity. He has the audacity to use this same word that Jesus used in Matthew 19 to talk about that that faraway day. Paul has the audacity to use this same Greek word to describe what happens to us at our conversion. In other words, what he's saying is that At that moment, when we confess Jesus as Lord and we believe that God has raised him from the dead, our sins were forgiven and we experience palingenesis or rebirth with God. 
We, we experience freedom from the guilt and shame of our past and our future. We, we experience renewal. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You want to know what's wrong and what, 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 why, why it's so hard for us to engage the culture as Christians? It's because we don't remember this simple message in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that the old has gone and the new has come. And what God is calling us to do as a family and as those who have experienced palingenesis is to walk in the newness of life. To leave and to forsake sins and the weightiness and the guilt of our past. You see, only Jesus can do that. Not only does he offer us freedom and renewal, but he also offers us washing or baptism. We're going to see that later today in our service, but our old person goes under, and that's what the picture of baptism is. It's a picture of us being buried with Christ, that as we take these little girls who are placing their faith in Jesus, they are going to go under the water, which signifies them being buried with Jesus, and then they're going to be risen up to signify them emerging to walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Lee, Naomi, and Cheyenne, remember this day. Remember this day. Don't allow this day just to come and go as another day. But this is a day in which we celebrate the beauty of the washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit to God's glory alone. Not only that, but we also see in the rebirth imputation where Jesus, we see the glorious exchange of Jesus taking our sin, God forgiving our sin, and the Holy Spirit empowering us not to sin. It's a good reminder for us of the Trinity that we even see in this text that God saves, Jesus redeems, and the Spirit empowers. We see this even in verses four through six. So why does he save us? Why, why does he take the time to save us? Look with me in verse seven. So that having been being justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Notice with me, this life is hard. <laughs> this life at sometimes is unbearable. It's unpredictable and it's definitely uncertain. But we all know by the grace of God how the story will end. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life. No matter what you're going through, or what you experience, there is hope because Jesus got up. And because he got up, his resurrection makes everything and lets us know that everything will be okay. Because we have a resurrected Savior who is committed not just to die, but to be resurrected and to help us grow in what it means for us to grow in sanctification and to grow in godliness before God and before this watching world. How do I know that thing, everything's going to be okay? Because Jesus got up. He got up. 
And we're thankful for that. Lastly, we see what did God save us to do? Or what did he save us to, excuse me? Verse 8 gives us a, a synopsis of this. It says, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. It's a good reminder for us that our lives, our relationships, and our works must be apologetic. They must be apologetic. So as we close right now, I want to give you three imperatives for us, three applicational things that we need to take away. Number one, we need to walk away knowing this. Number one, God calls us to be committed to doing what is good. He calls us to be committed to doing what's good. Number two, God calls us to be reminded of his generous and gracious love. God calls us to be reminded of his generous and gracious love. And then number three, God calls us to mimic God's love towards others. God calls us to mimic his love towards others. I love the wisdom of one of my favorite Christian philosophers, James K.A. Smith. He writes these words. He says, as a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be confident. Heresy, heresy hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with brilliance and ironclad arguments. And as a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. <laughs> when you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. When you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. I used to imagine my calling was to defend the truth. Now, I'm just trying to figure out how to love. It's not that I've given up on truth. It's just that I'm less confident we'll think our way out of the morass and malaise in which we find ourselves. Analysts won't save us. And the truth of the gospel is less a message to be taught than a mystery enacted. Love won't, say, won't, love won't save us either, of course, but I've come to believe that the grace of God that will save us is more powerfully manifested in beloved community than in rational enlightenment. So how are you to respond? I'm talking to three people and I need you to listen because I, I want you to be able to respond well according to these three things. Number one, non-Christians. If you are not a believer of Jesus, I want you to respond and I want you to know and encourage you not to underestimate the power of the gospel. Don't, don't underestimate the newness that Christ offers. You see, God doesn't just offer little improvement here and there. He gives you new vision. He gives you new hope and he gives you a new life. Place your, your, place your uh, place your faith and trust in him because he's the only one that's worthy of it. To my nominal Christians, those who are just flying by, scooting past, don't underestimate the promise of the gospel. Don't underestimate the surety of the gospel. Have you experienced this power? Has the spirit of God broken into your life? If you have been if you trusted in Christ and not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Now is your time. Now is your moment. Christ's power is sure and is impactful for you. And then lastly, for the growing Christian, I say to you, don't underestimate the presence of the gospel through you. 
Don't underestimate the power of being a faithful presence of love and good deeds. How you choose to show up matters to God. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. And we ask that, Lord, you would help us to be a beautiful church who engages the world with faithful deeds and avoids foolish disputes. God, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of what it means to be a beautiful church. God, we can only be beautiful because the one who births us is beautiful. So we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us and you provide for us in every way. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would go before your people and you would help every person that I mentioned, even in this passage, even in this sermon, Lord, to respond well to the authority and the kingdom of God. I pray for the non-Christian that they will become believers of Jesus, that they would repent of their sins and turn and place their faith in Jesus, maybe for the first time in in their lives. God, I pray for the nominal Christian who's just scooting by. I pray that you would reignite a fire within their souls that would give them a a, a passion and a desire to seek you more than anyone or anything else in this world. I pray for the growing Christian. Pray for confidence and boldness to be able to step into hard situations, knowing that you are for them and that you will provide for them, even despite no matter how hard the situation may be. Grow us as your church and as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to partake in communion. So we have cups in front of you if you would like to partake. We invite those who are Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus to take this meal with us. If you are not a Christian, we ask that you abstain from this meal. Not because we're trying to exclude you, but because this meal speaks to the reality of Jesus being Lord and Savior of our lives. The bread and wine that you're about to partake of speaks to the reality of Jesus being our perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Speaks to his life, his burial, his death, his sufferings, and his glorious resurrection on the third day. By by partaking of this meal, it proclaims more than just taking bread and wine. It proclaims Christ's death until he returns. On the night that Jesus was Betrayed, he took bread and broke it and blessed it and said, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat, take, and eat the bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ went on to say that I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink from it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.